This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Daryl Jordison. Daryl, along with his wife Kylie, own Barnagrotti, farming 4,000 acres and currently running 400 cows just near Galagambone. But as you'll hear, Daryl and Kylie didn't grow up on a farm. In fact, they both grew up in suburban Sydney. In this episode, Daryl tells us about his and Kylie's journey from being a mechanic and a hairdresser in Sydney to running their own farm and getting the chance to travel the world. You'll also hear how a rare illness has given Daryl a new outlook on life and how his story goes to show that working hard, learning from others and being willing to try new things can lead to success. Central West Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Callan Thompson sat down with Daryl at home on Barnagrotti as he shared his story. Today I'm with Daryl Jordison at Barnagrotti. So we have a trial at Daryl's place looking at some tropical pasture species. That's how I ran into Daryl. But I'm not going to talk a lot about the tropical grasses. We had a bit of yarn that day and you told me a bit of your story and I thought I came away thinking, well, this has got to be a podcast. This is a, this is a really good story. But I might get you to just start, Daryl, with just telling me about your business here and about your farm. Yeah, thanks, Callum. At the moment now we're diversified into cattle as well as the cropping. We were 100% cropping. We were farming mainly winter crops, canola, wheat, barley, chickpeas. And, yeah, we, we were farming about just under 4,000 acres. We used to do a lot more. We used to do 8,000 acres, but we since got out of that other place and yeah so we're just going into a few more cattle and a bit less farming and you're saying of quite a bit of tropical grass in some of those old farming paddocks yep yeah so it's all they're all old farming paddocks which was all zero till from 2002 yeah we're just having a dabble in the, the tropicals and probably four years ago started planting my first paddock and it's really good it's a little bit hard at times to turn around when you've been zero tilling these paddocks for so long and turn around <laughs> put stock in them and watch them walking all over your country. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it seems to be working really well, like, and the country's, you know, it's not wrecked for the future for farming. Like, uh, I think that's the big thing that we ever want to get rid of these grasses we can and the country would have had a good spell and we can go back into a farming program if if we, if we ever want to do that, you know. Yeah, your tropicals you're growing, so your digit grass on your lighter country and then your panics on the heavy country? Yeah, so our soil type here, Callum, is fairly consistent when we were looking around to buy a place. I noticed a lot of places have mixed variety of soil types. We're very fortunate here on this place. We've got red on lime, so it's all very consistent. A few little sandier red loam patches through it, but virtually the whole place is red sandy loam. It's a neutral pH and about 15 centimetres we have clay, so it's got that water holding capacity. I find that whether it's the Premier Digit or the Rhodes grass or, you know, some of the ones that suit the heavier country like yeah, Bambasti. Bambasti and Garden Panics. Yep. They're growing well, you know. Yeah. I suppose we're fortunate in that way. Yep. And your cattle operation, is that a breeder-based system? Or? Yeah, it is. Callum, we just started off with a with 100 cows and we just sort of been breeding our own. 
claiming our heifers and we've been building our numbers up. We were lucky enough to keep all our cattle through the drought. We, at the moment, we're, we're running them 400 cows and we've got another 130 heifers there that we've kept from last year that we'll be joining up and bring them into the into the deal. So predominantly, oh, I mean, I'd like to go all black with my cattle, but it, it's a hard slog, you know. We've, we've got a lot of black cows and we're using black Angus bulls and it's quite hard at these current prices to go and upend a heifer that's a good type that's might have a bit of colour on it. Different colour. So. Yeah, yeah, it's all about feet on the ground at the minute, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's, so they're doing really well and yep. it's obviously a good season at the moment, so I'm pretty excited about coming into this spring with the amount of moisture we've got under all, all the pasture paddocks, so it'll be good. Daryl, one of the one of the real reasons I wanted to talk to you, it sounds crazy that I'd talk to someone with so many tropical grasses and, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about tropicals, but I want to talk to you about how you got into farming. Often we hear that you can't get into farming unless you're born on it, but I think you've proven that wrong. Can you give me a bit of a rundown of your story and yeah, how I, you and I, Kylie got here? Yeah, okay. Calm. So I grew up in Sydney, a little place called Barara. It's on the edge of the Barara waters on the Hawkesbury River. Three siblings, family of four and normal house in town, I suppose you'd call it. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, my father always had vegetable garden and he had his chooks there and, and it was just uh, pretty good lifestyle for a kid growing up and went to a public school and went to a public high school and had really no visions of ever being a farmer or going to the country. I didn't like school. I never really did real well at school and I finished high school in year 10 and went out and got an apprenticeship as a mechanic in a Holden dealership and done my apprenticeship there and then moved back after I finished my apprenticeship there, moved back to a service station and started working with another fellow that owned a service station as a mechanic Yep. in Brower. My wife, Kylie, she's she's also from Brower as well there and yep. she was just down the road from where I was at the service station. She was a hairdresser and, yeah, we met up and got engaged and then got married. I was quite young. I was 21 when I got married. Kylie was only 20. So we got married and went away for a weekend before we were married to Lightning Ridge goat races and yeah. just a bit of a <laughs> trip out to the goat races and we pulled into Gilgandra. There was a bakery there and we were having a, a feed there and there's a real estate agent next door and I said to Kylie, I said, gee, these houses are cheap here. There's a house here for $30,000, you know, and we should buy a house. So we purchased this house for $30,000 and it was on <laughs> Warren Road in the main street of Gilgandra. We weren't married at that stage and yep. Kylie's parents were good enough to go guarantee for us, so we borrowed the whole lot. I think we were getting $120 a week rent on this $30,000 house, which was covering the repayments. And yep. Could yeah, return on investment? Long-term, yeah, long-term tenants. So it was, it was a good thing. So we ended up going traveling after we purchased the house and we both left our jobs and we packed up a caravan and a land cruiser FJ40 and tinny on top and and we took off so we went to Tasmania and we spent 18 months in Tasmania and I, I got a job down there it was very hard to get a job at that stage down there and Don Road Mowers was the first job I got repairing you know mowers and pumps that were in the the Abel Tasman at that time okay to, pump out the bilge in the Abel Tasman. So yep. I had that job. And then I ended up getting a job with Helispray, which was a helicopter spraying company in Tasmania. And I remember going to the CES. That was back in the days where 
they had the cards on the board for the jobs that were interviewed and I saw this loader driver required for a helicopter spraying company must have no earrings, no long hair, no tattoos, and I had all three. So I thought, oh, I went up to the counter, and you wouldn't be able to do it today, but I went up to the counter, and I said, I'd like to apply for this job with my card, and, and the lady looked at me, and she said, oh, I don't think you fit the job description, and I said, all oh, right, so I left it at that, but I knew where this this helicopter outfit was at La Trobe, so I rocked up there that afternoon, and Daryl was the, the guy that owned the place. He said, what are you here for? And I said, oh, I'm just here for the job interview. And he said, oh, they didn't tell me there was anybody coming. And I said, yeah, oh, didn't they? I, they no, they told me, <laughs> told me to come this afternoon. And he said, I'll oh, be, be here at half past four in the morning and we'll see how you go. So I lobbed up at half past four and I was with him for 18 months. It was the longest the employer he had. And we're still mates today. We went to his wedding and his 50th and he's just recently had his 60th. We didn't make it down there with the COVID, but yeah, we're still still good friends, you know. So yeah. that was good. We we met a lot of people in Tasmania and so we, we ended up spending the 18 months down there and we left there and went straight to Darwin and I got a job as a forklift mechanic in Darwin and Kylie was doing hairdressing out of the caravan in the caravan park. Yeah. At, uh, <laughs> the old... Shady Glen Caravan Park there at Winelli. Yeah, I went – first I worked in Catherine for a builder. We went out and done some contract work for the RAF, putting demountable buildings up out at Delamere near the bombing range out there, just a few different things like that. And then we moved up to Darwin from Catherine and got the job as a forklift mechanic. And so that was good. Still no farming jobs or anything like that. I worked at Ballangilly Farms just out of Catherine. We yeah. picked rock melons and yep. – been to Ballangilly. Yeah, yeah, like done a bit of that there. And I just like being outside, like yeah. being a mechanic and stuck in a workshop all the time. It was just good to be outside. We ended up taking off from Darwin and moved down to Western Australia and worked our way down there. And I had this urge that I really wanted to go shearing. I'd never, ever been in a shearing shed, never, <laughs> ever saw a sheep sh- shorn. Or, but I just wanted – I thought it was really – authentic Australian thing to do is be a shearer. So I said to Kyle, Geez, I really would like to shear, you know, like she said, well, why don't you just do it? And I said, yeah, I, I don't know, but I don't know anything about it, you know. So all the way down Western Australia, I'd looking at, you know, shearing sheds and blokes were shearing there and we'd drop in and yeah. say good day and meet the shearers and just anyhow, when, when we end up getting back, we, we moved back in 1993, moved back to Gilgandra into the house, kicked the tenants out and and moved into this little house in town. Kylie set up a hairdressing shop in, in the main street of Gilgandra. I went started working for farmers, but I still had this passion to go shearing. I was working for farmers and just I wanted to be outside and I wanted to work with sheep and, and cattle and do all that sort of stuff. But once I knew I was a mechanic, Straight to I was sort shed. of back in the workshop doing wheel bearings on the trucks or fixing augers or, you know, yeah. and I, I didn't want to do that. And then an opportunity came up to do a shearing school down at, Laris Lee down in near Wellington. So I entered to do this this school and I think I must have been in my mid twenties at that stage and all the young fellas that were at the school were, you know, eighteen, nineteen and they all sort of looked at me as the old bloke, you know, what what would you want to go shearing for? Start to learn to shear. So anyhow, that's what I did. I learned to shear and I'd done an intermediate school and and done a, a couple of advanced schools and Came really good at shearing and I really enjoyed it. Like I used to love going to different places and 
I was fit and just meeting new people. And the whole time that I was shearing, I'd, I would sort of go onto a farm and you would see the difference between good farmers and the ones that were just surviving, you know, the ones that were just there had lice in their sheep and they weren't presented very good and shearing sheep was falling down. But you go into a place there, he had nice crops as you drove in and, you know, well-presented sheep and everything was good. Well, them farmers I'd start talking to about farming and just chatting to them in general and asking them things and, and I thought, oh, I'd love to go have a try at this farming, you know, like it, it'd be a good challenge just to, you know, you'd be outside, be working for yourself. And so I kept shearing and I shore for 10 years and in that time we started a family. We have three girls and, and two boys. They were all born in Gilgandra, so they, they were in the house there and Kylie sort of juggled them between her job and the kids. And I uh, kept shearing for 10 years and using home as a base. And, you know, Gilgandra, I didn't have to go away a lot shearing. I was doing a lot of sheds around Gilgandra and Colli and them sort of areas, which was good. And then I was lucky enough to get into a bit of share farming. There was a butcher from Engadine in Sydney, had a 500-acre block and had all the old gear out there, an old combine and scarifier and old 354 countryman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chamberlain tractor. And he said, you can do 230 acres. He said, I'll give you a percentage, which was the lesser percentage. He said, I'll have all the costs, but he said, you've got to fix all the gear up and put the crop in. I said, yeah, okay, that sounds like a good deal. So I was shearing and then going out there. 94 was the first crop that we put in, and it was a drought year, 94. I think I made $250 was was my cut of the adjustment. (laughs) This bloke put a heap of cattle on there and hit the crop off, and that was the end of it. Yeah. It didn't dishearten me. I worked at harvest time and things like that, and 93 was the first harvest that I did which was for a fellow called Bob Hooten at Wongi, just out of Galaganbone. And he was really good to me. He he would lend me a bit of gear if I didn't have it or give me a bit of seed wheat and give me a bit of advice on what I should be doing. And I remember he came out and had a look at the crop in 94 and I said, what do you think? And he scratched around the ground there and he had a look at it. He said, when you get home tonight, he said, just before you go to bed, kneel down beside your bed and put your hands together and pray for rain. (laughs) (laughs) He said, said, it's the only chance you've got to get anything out of this. So I thought, oh, that's fair enough. But 95, we had a bump a year. Yeah. We just, it kept going from there, you know. I was farming like every other farmer. I was conventionally farming. I just didn't think it made sense. Like I, I used to watch my father and, you know, if the cricket ball went over into his veggie garden and we went over there and trotted over his paddock, he'd be um, <laughs> up us, you know. <laughs> and so my mother used to always put hay and stuff around her garden and conserve the moisture. And I got onto some fellas at Spring Ridge over in Liverpool Plains that were zero tilling. And I went over there and just introduced myself and met up with a couple of them and showed me around what they were doing and and I thought, oh, this makes a lot of sense. So I ended up purchasing a groundhound from Spring Ridge Engineering and it was only 25 foot. That's all I could afford. I ended up modifying it to 30 foot after I'd done a, a couple of years contracting. And there was a lot of blokes that had ran sheep and, you know, they wanted to dabble in a bit of zero tillage, you know, this new thing that was going on. And so I was getting a lot of contract work, but a lot of the times, you know, the sheep were still in the paddock when I was sowing the paddock and, <laughs> you know, dodging sheep and it was yeah, just wasn't yeah. right. But 
anyhow, I did that and we leased a bit more country and then after that 10-year period, I ended up giving the shearing away. 2002, we'd sort of saved enough money to get into this block here at Barnagrotti. Really fortunate, like the price of lamb was fluctuating around that $400, $550 an acre and yeah, we were really lucky to get into this place for less than that. So that was it. We moved out here in 2002 and that was a dry year as well. Yeah, so we yeah. we Terrible. followed everything. Yeah, kicked on from there and put the zero till into motion here. And yeah. a lot of these paddocks haven't been cultivated since 2002 and we had to work loosen out of them to plant our first crop in 2003. Yeah, okay. I reckon it took about seven years before the country to do a full circle and, and start working in my benefit. We got less weeds. The country got softer. It was just positives the whole way. Yeah, but you yeah. just had to be patient. And, you know, sometimes it looked a bit messy too, you know, like you'd have stubble clumps or whatever. But our crop rotations were a big thing too. We had legumes, obviously, after our cereals. And then I started dabbling in a bit of broadleaf on broadleaf. So I, I would grow a, a winter crop like wheat. And then I'd put my canola or I'd put chickpeas or lupins into that. We were lucky enough because we had red loam, we could grow lupins. The following year, I would grow canola on the lupin stubble. We were getting the mineralization from the end from the lupins and the canola crops were really benefiting from that. And it worked out good. So our crop rotation, we never ever used to put cereals on cereals. I could just see a decline in yield, so I never done it. That was sort of how we got into the the farming side of things came around and I was still share farming a little bit yep. and leasing a bit of country when we first took this place on. About 10 years ago, 2011 I think it was, at Wongi where I first worked in 93 with Bob Hooten, that place had sold a couple of times and it went to auction and got passed in and I was fortunate enough, Kylie and I won an Excellence in Farming Award yeah. with the National Australia Bank. Yeah, I'd like to know a bit more about that if you could, yeah, expand on that a bit, what yeah, the award well, was about. Every year we, we kept entering in the crop competitions, like just a bit of local interest, you know, yep. and put a crop in and we were winning them like every year for a number of years and in the district crop comp. When the judges come out, they started up this National Australia Bank Excellence in Farming Award and it was the inaugural one that they had and wasn't someone that had the best yield or the best crops. It was someone that, when the judges looked at their farm overall, they thought that they were doing a good job with everything. So we won that. There was a dinner down in Forbes and we went down to the dinner and National Australia Bank were obviously there, the representative was there and I got talking to the um, the, the guy there, manager, and I said, oh, look, there's this farm up the road. I said, uh, do you ever get anybody that wants to invest in a bit of country? I'd like to buy it. But I said, I haven't got the money and I could farm it, yeah. you know, and – I think it'd be a good opportunity for someone. It had just recently been passed in at auction and he said, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I'll, occasionally I'll keep my ear to the ground. And the very next day, a guy from Tasmania flew up to Dubbo and was the losing bidder on a place in Launceston for a fair wedge of money. And he asked this bloke I was talking to, is there any places for sale around here that can be farmed? But more so, the point, is there anybody that, would be able to run it and farm it for us. <laughs> and he said, well, actually, I was just talking to a bloke last night. He said, he's a pretty handy farmer. He won this Excellence in Farming Award and put you in contact with him. So as it turned out, because we lived in Tasmania, I knew people that this this guy knew. Yep. 
Anyhow, he had a partner in the UK, also a big farmer in the UK, an investor, and we chatted and talked and they came over and we'd done a joint venture with Wongi, which was the original place that I worked on in 93. Yep. And we moved into Wongi and developed it and set it up the same as here, you know, no fences and all equal-sized blocks with tramline farming. That was a really good learning curve for me too because it, it opened me up to dealing with not only successful businessmen and farmers, but also the amount of contacts that it gave me from the people that they knew. One of those contacts was a farming family that had a company called Ingleby Farms, and they were based in Denmark, in Copenhagen. The CEO of that Ingleby Farms came out and visited here at Barnagrotti and had a bit of a look, and we got an invitation to go to Copenhagen. We went to the office in Copenhagen. He had an itinerary all planned for us that he emailed through, and we went there and sat down and he had all these, he had a map of the world behind him in the office and he had all these thumbtacks, different coloured ones for future acquisitions, current acquisitions, (laughs) and all over the world they had country and one was a a new acquisition they took on in Romania. He offered Kylie and I the opportunity to go and manage the place in Romania and... You would have had fairly young kids at Yeah, we had young kids and... I like my horses and I had horses here and I said to this, uh, Hans Hedrick, co-fed was his name, I said to him, I said, I can't take you up on the opportunity, Hans, because I said, you know, I've got my horses and I've got family at home and I said, I don't think you'd be able to afford to to get me to go to Romania. And he looked at me and he said, this is not for kids, Daryl. He said, you just try me. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes I think, you know, I, I have slight regrets that I didn't take that on and and just give it a try, you know, but it was some beautiful black farming land in Romania, but there was no infrastructure there. And so that was that was just a one contact. And I went to the UK and Roger, the partner, went, went and stayed with him and had a look around at what they were doing in the UK and went to Germany and, you know, just had a look at different farming practices and different ideas. It was really good. One of the things that I realised over there that I adapted back here was we were growing a lot of canola and I had two windrowers that we were contract windrowing with. And it was just a done thing. Everybody that grew, still is, everybody that grows canola, windrows. And I noticed in the in the UK that they started off windrowing, they started direct heading. It was like 20% and then 40% and then 100% of it's all direct headed now. Yeah. And their reason behind that was, you know, they were desiccating the crop and then they were, they were getting better seed size, which equates to yield, and better oil. It wasn't cut premature to, to finishing. And I thought, oh, that's really good. You know, I, I thought that's got a lot of sense in it. So I went to Germany and had a look at it with Ingleby Farms. I went over there and had a look at some of their estates and they were actually harvesting canola, direct heading it. They were using a class machine with a, a Vario front. So I ended up coming back home and I, I bought a class header with a, a 45-foot Vario front just started doing my own. Like it does tie you up a little bit for your wheat. It can hang on a little bit longer. You have to be patient. Like we find that everybody says, oh, you, you know, like what about all the shelling out with the wind and you, you know, you're going to lose it. But I found that if it's all hanging together, it doesn't blow around as much as, you know, we were still getting losses in a windrow with the wind and, and picking it up, you get losses. But it, it works really well. And I direct headed now for 10 years or so now. Like, yep. and, yeah, I don't think I'd ever change that. So that's how all that came about with Wongi and 
and them fellas and then currency changed a little bit and a few situations changed and then partner in the UK he wanted to get out so we sold that place and then moved back here to Barnagrotti and started to yeah concentrate on this place and and another place we bought yeah not far up the road. So it sounds like you've come into agriculture without any preconceived ideas you didn't have your dad guiding you from an agricultural point of view he, he did influence you with your zero till by the sound of things but you didn't have that father figure sort of sitting over you directing where you went you came in and you were able to do your own thing and learn from the people you wanted to learn from i think all this farming's quite easy i find it quite easy like it's there's so much advice and free advice out there and i think if you're interested in something whether that's shearing or farming or you know 10 pin bowls whatever it is <laughs> you know if you're interested in something yep. you'll well i know i do i'll go out of my way to find out and about it you know like, it's just something that I didn't have any preconceived ideas because I'd never done it before, but I had some pretty big learning curves through my hip pocket, like yep. where I'd done things that cost me money and I wouldn't do again. But a lot of the times when you do anything like that, you've got to back your own ability a bit. At the end of the day, you're putting seed in the ground and, you know, keeping the paddocks clean and it's it's not that difficult, yep. you know, I think. But a lot of people get mixed up in what the neighbour's doing and what he's doing and what they're doing and they're doing it because their agronomist told them to do it that way and they're not actually learning because it's like I liken it to um, driving somewhere with your mate and you're in the passenger seat. You're not actually looking at where you're going. He is because he's driving, you know, and he's he's calling the shots and where he's going. But then when you get to your location, jump in the car and drive back, you're thinking, geez, I wasn't, which way did he go here? I wasn't looking, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because somebody else is making them decisions. And it, I liken it to that. It, it, you know, I don't use an agronomist. I have in the past, you know, which which are more like mates than agronomists. I go out there and I, I've got my herbicide books and I look at the weeds we've got and I look at what can control it and the best options for me. And, yeah, you still have to work with an agronomist. I mean, they've got, they've got all these new products that are coming on the market and different things like that, and which which I do, you know. I, it comes in handy to to work in with them, but as far as making decisions and, and on, on that day to day basis, yeah, you're, you're there doing it. Yeah, yeah, I just do it myself, you know. Yeah, it's worked fine, you know. Like, and, and I think it becomes a bit of a chore the farming. That's why I'm sort of really enjoying the cattle with the, the subtropicals because you order your fertilizer and you work out your cropping program and then you you get your seed and or you grade your seed and then you you know you got the moisture there, so you start sowing canola on Anzac Day and it's just for me it's um. It's not as challenging as what it used to be. Yeah. You know, I still get a lot of pride and a lot of enjoyment out of looking at a crop and sitting up on on the header, you know, watching this grain flow into the bin. And for me, these subtropicals have taken over that where I just like to jump on a horse and ride down through my cattle, you know, grass up to my stirrup irons and just look at the fat fat cattle. And and yeah, so it's, we've had to adapt a fair bit. Like we've had, we took out all our infrastructure, our fences, our water trough so we've all had to put all that back in yeah but we put it into where we want it to as yeah we planted a lot of tree lines back in 2003 so i could never ever see myself doing what we're doing now with the cattle because i was just mad keen on farming yeah and daryl you had here a couple of months ago a bit of a life-changing experience and i think last time we're talking you said that's really pushed you into really being more focused on the the cattle and livestock even more so yeah, yeah. Well, I was unfortunate. I got very sick and 
contracted LCM virus, which is a, a form of meningitis that was quite rare. I was the first person in Australia to, to ever have that. I nearly died. Like it was touch and go. Like yeah, I never ever yeah. thought I was going to die, but I had Everyone a- Everyone else did, didn't they? Yeah, they all did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they ripped me off. <laughs> but the uh, I had a really severe infection in my brain fluid and my spinal cord. The doctors got over that with drugs- by anti-inflammatory steroids and and got me through it with virtually no side effects, which was amazing because, you know, I had so much swelling around my brain. You know, there was lots of things that I could have come away with strokes. My hearing's not as good as what it was and I got a bit of ringing in my ears constantly, but hell, I can put up with that, you know, like (laughs) looking at the consequences. Yeah, yeah. The alternative. That was a bit of a wake-up call. I'm no different to any other farmer. Callum, I, I... you know, if we're going to go and have a week away or go on holidays, I'm running around and I'm checking fences and water troughs and, oh, I've got to get that paddock sprayed and I've got to put that bit of gear away so it's not in the rain. And I um, was carted out of here in an ambulance and then the next time I w- walked out that kitchen door was five weeks later to jump in the ute and go and have a look around the place. Yeah. And I realised at that stage that nothing had changed. Yeah. Nothing was a train wreck. Everything was still there, like... I had a few weeds in my fallow, and but it's not the end of the world. You yeah. know, I think we get hung up on – I used to get hung up on everything had to be perfect and done on time, and, and that is right. Like, you have to do your farming on time and to be successful at it, but it just sort of hit home to me that your health is everything, and, you know, if we can't live this lifestyle on a farm and enjoy it, what's the point? When I was, you know, living in Sydney and people used to say, like, oh, farming, it's such a good lifestyle, and then – I sort of realised once I got into it that it's like everything else. You go to work and you, you have big debts and then you, you have stresses and, and you don't actually get to enjoy the lifestyle, you know. Like I've sort of taken the approach now where we're doing less farming, we're going to put in more grasses, we're going to run more cattle and just enjoy the farm and enjoy things a bit. You know, the grandkids come over and they can jump on a horse and go for a ride and, and, and just really enjoy what we've worked hard to get. Yeah. And just enjoy it because life's pretty quick. When I was so close to not being here, you know, only back in February, you sort of think it's not that important to stress out about a bit of that grain that you've got to grade or, you know, it's yeah. just – and we all do it. I think it's – um, it was a really big wake-up call to myself and Kylie, you know, like she's seen the change in me now. I mean, to sit down and, and have a couple of hours to do a podcast, <laughs> you, you know, like – Oh mate, I'm, I've got all these things to do yeah. But now. Yeah, let's do it. Like, you know, like it's no big drama. You know. Yeah. I think that's um that's one of the things that that changed a lot when when I got sick. Well, Daryl, I think that's probably all we've got time to to fit in. We might have to do another one on tropical grasses. I, I don't think we talked about yeah, them enough, yeah. but I really appreciate you sharing your your story with us today. It was uh, really good. No worries. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. 
I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.